TBA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 2, Self-Conscious Fish, featuring Alex Jordan. Fish are compassionate, recognize themselves in the mirror, and fancy design shelters over natural ones. Recent experiments contest common ideas of what distinguishes humans from smaller, non-mammalian creatures of the sea. I'm Ingo Niermann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amores, and today I'm talking to Alex Jordan, principal investigator at the Department of Collective Behavior at the Max Planck Institute in Konstanz, Germany. We speak at his home near Lake Konstanz. I'm a biologist. I'm a wildlife biologist insofar as I believe that the study of animals should take place in the places where those animals live and have evolved. I'm very interested in behavior and variation in behavior and what creates differences in behavior. Um, I'm interested in interactions, how one animal influences what another animal does, how the environment influences what another animal does, how humans influence what animals do, and how all of these things influence our perception and understanding of animals. You didn't mention the ocean, your focus on sea animals, on fish. How important is that? Um, when we walk through a forest or through a city or along the shore of a lake or a beach, That's our world. That's the world we've grown up in and developed in and have become used to. But once you go underwater, you realize this is not your world. You are foreign to this world. Um, and I think, at least for me, that brings me much closer to the goal of understanding or trying to understand the experiences of the animals as a function of what they are experiencing not 
viewed through the lens of our experience. When did your fascination with the ocean begin? I grew up in Sydney. Um, Sydney has Bondi Beach. Sydney and Australia and the culture there is is synonymous with the beach and surfing. Um, and I never had any of that. Um, it's very class-related, I think. A lot of Australians, of course, in smaller towns have direct access to the ocean. But in the cities, the ocean is, is behind a, a class wall. All the waterfront property, as in many cities, is privatized. And I didn't live very close to the water. And so I did, it wasn't sort of, I guess, as you might expect, that the common story, I just grew up around the beach and whatever. No, this was absolutely not the case for me. I came into it through having fish tanks in my room. As a kid, I had my Nintendo and my fish tank and my homework, and that was it. And it was sort of like, again, this idea of a portal into another world. You're looking in at this other world. And then as I got older, I did start to explore the ocean and, and the rock pools. And again, it was, here's a rock pool and it's another world. There are anemones in there. There is seaweed. There are crabs. There are octopus. Amazing things just in this sort of galaxy that's just below you. Um, and then I guess the, the sort of tipping point came when I started to snorkel and be entirely under and in that world. And all the challenges that come with that of not being able to move properly and being bashed up against rocks and scratching yourself and losing things. I really enjoyed the wildness of it and the, the fact that it was so uncompromising. This was not a place for me. Um, the ocean was not concerned with whether or not I was there. And also the animals were less concerned. The fish might have been initially a little startled, but certainly not um, running off, swimming off, as you might experience in a forest on land. Let's get back to the fish tanks. Mm -hmm. So there were several tanks. Yes. And how, how did all this come? I think uh, that was, again, a function of growing up in a city. Um, in a very small space. And so my access to nature, even in Australia, was limited. And so I started with a simple fish tank that every kid has with colorful fish and made all the mistakes. And then started to just, by chance, have a few species in the tank that mated. Um, and you started to realize These are animals that you can keep in a tank and provide them with enough naturalistic context that they will perform the behaviors they would otherwise be performed um, in the wild. And that was super exciting to me because it's not like a bird in a cage. It's not like a dog, um, although I did have a dog and cats. It was something that was performing natural behaviors and Then they have babies and so you need another tank. And so one tank became two tanks and two tanks became five tanks. And there were times in my room where there was more water than, than shelf space. Um, and it's sort of ever since fluctuated throughout my life. There have been periods, for instance, when I was in university as an undergraduate, 
where my entire house, my entire kitchen was filled with fish tanks. Um, fish tanks that I had scavenged from, from aquarium shops that were closing down. And I would go to the ocean and bring home things and, and nurture them. Um, I remember coming home one day and I had a very large fish tank in the kitchen. It was old. I had got it for free and it had uh, broken. It had just just unfolded, you know, the silicon seals had broken. And to a depth of about 10 centimeters, my entire kitchen was full of seawater with all the fish swimming around. And of course it was a major disaster in terms of the apartment, but the animals were actually fine. It was quite an amazing scene to have all your pets swimming around in your kitchen. Did you combine different species in one tank? Yeah, I, I certainly did combine species. I became very interested in this concept of a biotope um, or biotype aquarium, um, where you replicate the Blackwater Amazon rivers, or you replicate the the temperate oceans or the tropical reefs or something and so you try to combine all of the species that naturally co-occur and that's very important because some of them have relationships and symbiotic relationships um, that they will be behaving differently better if you will when they're interacting with other species that over evolutionary time they have interacted with how would that symbiotic relationship look like, for instance? Well, I mean, the classic case is with with something like an anemone, an anemone fish, um, where the one is providing shelter for the other and, and the other may be providing food or defense. Um, but, but certain corals will benefit from fish sleeping inside them um, and moving, circulating the water through them even at night. Um, and in, in freshwater systems, you might have, um, snails, um, and when the snails die, the fish use their shells, um, or even something like a cleaner fish, um, a cleaner ras, um, will clean the, um, the skin of other fish in the tank. Shrimp as well, are very good at cleaning fish or, or cleaning algae off, off rocks and other surfaces so that coral can grow or sea urchins are doing the same job. So there's a sort of mix between a true symbiosis and an ecological balance. If you just have snails in your tank, then no plants will grow. But if you have snails and shrimp and um, and fish, then corals and um, seaweeds can grow. And um, if you have the balance right, then you have a very healthy system. And that's also really a, an interesting element because you begin to understand how the processes in nature work. If you lose one entire type of creature, then the balance is broken and suddenly it tips to a very different state. Um, and, and the aquarium is a sort of a, a, a microcosm, a study of that. And you do make those mistakes. You want to have more of one thing because it's pretty or whatever your reason is. And you put more of that thing in and then you destroy the whole balance and everything looks terrible. In any closed system where any animal, including humans, is forced to live together in a closed area and can't leave 
it's very important that you monitor the interactions and the hierarchy because they can result in one individual eating all of the food and the rest starving or one individual taking the shelter and the rest being left out um, or aggression can become very high where one or more individuals are being attacked um, and so understanding the crucial point is that fish like many many animals are not dumb automata they don't just swim around in circles and and consume and die and then would you sit lay down stand in front of the tanks and and observe like for an extended period of time absolutely even today i have fish tanks on my desk on my desk at home on my desk at work i have as you can see little pockets of water everywhere just so that i can whatever i'm doing um, just rest my eyes on one of these microcosms and just not with any question in my head or any thought um, just watch what's happening yeah when i found out about your work i was really intrigued by the kind of by the playfulness of your experiments I'm glad you find it playful. Um, I think a lot of my colleagues find it belligerent <laughs> or irreverent, I would say. I think the playfulness comes from a respect for the animals themselves and an understanding of, of what they're capable of. I know from experience that fish can interact in creative ways with the world and change their environment and um, interact with humans and many other things. And so... I'm very keen and happy to explore that um, in a scientific realm. Science can be very stuffy and there's a very fixed order um, and there's hierarchy and there's seniority and there's, there's reputation um, and I don't care about any of that. Uh, quite the opposite. I think that's the barrier to, to science. Um, and so I try to design my work in science from a creative standpoint of of what the animal is experiencing um, and get behind the animal's eyes you used the words irreverent frivolous for an experiment with animals what does it even mean there are a lot of pressures on experiments with animals and even in that phrase animal experimentation that is a phrase with incredibly negative connotations and rightfully so because for 100 years more um, animals were used as substitutes for processes that we thought were not ethical to perform on humans and awful things were done The other great pressure is from the old guard, the established scientific order, which has very strong ideas about, for instance, the scale of nature um, on which intelligence sits, that humans are at the top of some scale of some mountain and every other animal or evolution is basically trying to push everything else up that mountain 
towards humans. We sit on the pinnacle. And whether this is a, uh, an idea based in religion or, or culture or whatever, um, the idea very much is that humans sit at the peak and animals are somewhere down the peak. But my view is entirely opposite to that, that humans sit on a little hill amongst a thousand million other hills. And on top of each hill, there's an animal. And it, evolution is pushing that animal up that hill to be the best of that type of animal that it can be. It's not pushing anyone towards the capacities that we have. Um, and so when I challenge this sort of concept that intelligence or cognition or consciousness exists on a scale, um, and I say that the scale is not the same scale. My study species, these fish, these, these spiders, these whatever, are not trying to get up your ladder. I guess we should talk about those experiments mm -hmm. like in detail. Because, you know, I was trying to, to think, what is a, a frivolous experiment? When you think of humans, it would be, I don't know, do something with them naked in public. I don't know. Yeah. If someone heard about my work by chance and they are hearing about me pursuing this question of whether fish are self-conscious, whether fish are intelligent, whether fish are aware of themselves, of others, of the environment. Um, for a lot of people, that sounds absurd because they know what fish are. Fish are dumb, unthinking things that you can scoop out of the ocean and stuff in a can. And that's what fish are. The casual observer, if, if they walked past my lab's door, And they heard, oh, in, in here, this, this crackpot guy is trying to figure out how many um, individuals a fish can remember or how long a fish remembers that it had a fight. And say, like, why on earth would you care about that? Um, but of course, I care about that because it fills in, or it should if you let it, fill in the image you have of this animal in your mind. Your first idea is, a, is basically an empty sketch that it's just a fish-shaped thing that's got meat in it. As an aside, many places that I've lived and, and the languages describe fish as water meat, a, a source of meat that comes from the ocean or the water. But once you start to reveal, as I've done, that fish might be self-aware in some way, that fish might be, <laughs> here's my dog, sorry. Um, Zavi, get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, sit down, we're talking. You can lie there. And so if your perspective is that a fish is serving this one purpose and you hear that I'm doing this kind of work, looking at self-consciousness, does this animal recognize itself in a mirror? Does this animal... Uh, remember social interactions? Does it feel fear or sadness when um, something negative happens to someone in its group or its, its mating partner? When you hear those things, you might think they are absurd and pointless and frivolous um, when you hear that someone is interested in those things. But then when you start to hear that, in fact, 
those things are true, that these animals are doing these things. For a lot of people, it's quite mind-blowing. They say, well, that's impossible. I mean, a fish has a three-second memory, right? And then you can explain, well, actually, quite the opposite. I mean, many fish, thousands of types of fish, have incredibly rich memories and, and abilities to, to discern and discriminate. Um, and so I wouldn't say that what I'm doing is inherently frivolous, but from a certain perspective, um, people will say, well, why are you wasting money doing that? It's not that you need a particle accelerator for these experiments. I guess they're not that expensive. Also very true. Yes, no. Um, if I have a snorkel and a pair of fins, I can basically do my work. Um, so we're not talking about anything on the same scale. That's certainly true. Where does this idea come from that they have a three-second memory? I believe it's a matter of convenience. It's convenient to believe that a goldfish in a bowl, barely longer than its own body, has no existential terror that it's being held within this confine for its entire life. It's very convenient for us to say, it's okay, that animal, every time it does one loop of the tank, is experiencing it new. I still remember that people would call themselves vegetarian, but eat fish. Yes, I would love to do this study. And I don't know if anyone has, but I would first want to check the eyes and something called gaze directedness. I can tell where a human is looking. I can tell where a dog is looking. I can tell where uh, an ape or a monkey are looking. Um, and that is consistent with this idea that the eyes are the window to the soul. And if you can't fathom the eye of a fish, of a reptile, of a bird, you can't tell where it's looking, um, then I think it creates a distance between you. You think that this thing is not sentient because the way you assess as a human sentience is by looking into their eyes. Um, and of course it's not true. You know, fish have something called a foveated region. It's an area of the eye. Not all fish have this, I must admit, but many fish have this region of the eye that is the focal point. They are looking at something. They are concentrating on something, but we don't have eyes that allow us to see that. And so I think it, there is a line drawn between, I wouldn't say it's so much mammals and the rest, it's mammalian eyes and the rest. And as a sort of thought exercise, if you think about a goat's eye, these are very strange looking pupils. And they are sort of alien, they're foreign to us. And I wouldn't be surprised if that also has something to do with the demonization of of goats in religious symbology because they have an eye that's not easy to understand. Um, a cow has a beautiful big brown eye and we're very drawn to it. Dogs as well, 
the difference between a domesticated dog and a wolf, of course, one big difference is that a dog will look you in the eye um, and will look longingly in, into your eyes. And so I think it has a lot to do with that. And that just reveals to me um, yet one more example of the way that the lens through which we observe the world is not true. It's our lens um, shaped by our experiences. Um, and of course, then we project interpretation on top of that. And one of the interpretations is that non-mammals are unthinking because of their eyes. There's nothing behind their eyes. And they're considered to be quiet. Quiet? Yes, they are. Um, some. <laughs> some animals are considered to be quiet. You got it, Sabi. Yeah, quiet. That's a very interesting point. Birds are not quiet to us, and especially songbirds, we have a, an affinity to. They create something beautiful to our ears. But the quietness of many animals is more to do with the fact that we don't have the ears to hear them. They are not quiet. Fish are not quiet. They're making sounds all the time grunting and vibrating and making all sorts of noise to communicate but we can't hear it but if scientists like me can can render that sound and play it to to a human in a way that they hear it or show the ultraviolet patterning on flowers or on on fish faces or or something these channels of communication that they use then they realize that Ah, yes, these things are not quiet. This is not um, that there's nothing going on. Some even can sense uh, each other's heartbeat, right? Yeah. If you look at the capacities of a human um, and compare it to the sensory capacities of, of other animals and other creatures, you start to realize that we're getting just a very small fraction of the world. I mean, everyone has this sense that dogs can hear much better than us and that they can smell much better than us. It's not really clear to me what that means, that a dog can smell much better than us. Scientifically, I, I understand it, but personally, I can't imagine smelling more. I mean, does it mean I smell things more strongly? No, because dogs can smell even more things. Um, and then you make statements like, well, Fish are tetrachromat. So we, we are trichromatic in our eyes. We have three types of receptors. Fish have four. Now, what does that mean? That means they see more colors. But can you imagine a color that you haven't seen? And so it, it quickly gets to the edge of our brain's capacity to even deal with this idea that there are animals that can feel the electrical impulses of the heartbeats of other animals. What does that feel like? Does it feel like buzzing? Do you hear it? Still, your experiments that sparked the most interest, they were about amazing similarities between humans and fish. They even end up like in magazines, like Psychology Today. So you almost get the impression, oh, wow, with Alex's experiments with fish, they tell us more about ourselves than experiments with monkeys. Yes. So it's true. The most 
exciting and interesting experiments that I've done in the public eye are those which reveal that animals, and in this case, fish primarily, have traits that are so similar to human traits. And of those experiments, the one that's caught the most interest is this mirror test experiment. So I did a series of experiments asking whether a fish, the cleaner wrasse, can pass a test which is called the mirror test, in which an animal is given a mirror and a mark somewhere on its body that it can't see except with the aid of the mirror. And if the animal attempts to remove that mark from its body after having looked at itself in the mirror, we can interpret that the animal recognizes the reflection as itself and tries to remove the mark, not from the reflection, but from its own body. And for 50 years, it's been accepted that if an animal passes the mirror test, that it attempts to remove this mark from itself, it's self-aware. Um, and then I come along and I do this experiment in a fish and show that the fish passes the test. It does attempt to remove this mark from its own body only when it has a mirror to see its own body. And all of a sudden the scientific world is in an uproar because a fish is not self-aware. That's the starting point. A fish is not self-aware, so your results must be wrong. We wanted a chimpanzee to be similar to us. We wanted a dolphin to be self-aware. That fit our narrative. And then you have me who comes along and says, no, here's one more entrant that, that demands access to your secret club. What does that now do to your club? Um, and so that study in particular has been super exciting in terms of the response, the vigor of the scientific debate around it, um, but also the, the psychological and philosophical uh, discussions around what is even the question. When I did the test, it was because I was interested in how smart, that's not the terminology I would use, but what the cognitive capacities of the fish that I was studying were or are. And this test was just one of the standard tests you do. Um, and we found that some fish don't pass it. And we found that this fish does. But having done that test and having had all of the conversations that, that arose because of it, now I'm much more interested in what am I even asking? So you have an answer? To me, the answer is what is this animal doing? What is it good at doing? What does it need to be good at doing to be the animal that it is? Um, and can we understand that and therefore respect even more that animal and in that sense the answer to the question what are we even trying to find out is not one of comparison it's not one of saying well humans can do this so then which animals can also do it it's this animal this octopus this shrimp whatever can do this incredible thing and its world is like this and 
isn't that amazing. Um, in an ideal world, that should be enough to spark wonder in humans from a fungus through to whatever, a diatom, a coral to a whale. All of them should have equal weight in, in generating awe and wonder in us. But I understand that they don't because humans are egocentric. We like to think about ourselves and we like to um, understand more about the human condition by comparing it to animals. And I think that's okay if you use what you understand about animals in the natural world to learn something about humans. It's just not okay if the value of knowledge of animals is relative to how similar it is to a human. When I heard about your mirror test with cleaner fish, it was when we first met a couple of years ago, you were still not able to, to even publish it. Right. I was really excited about it. And I had no doubt that you were right. Because I had always been wondering, what does this experiment actually test? Because we don't doubt that a dog has self-awareness. It, it does not pass the mirror test, but we have no doubt. You, you can call yes. the dog. The dog expresses his feelings, its needs to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't the dog have self-awareness? Mm -hmm. I think probably everybody who has pets was very uncomfortable with this yes. test because cats know, yeah. dogs know. Yeah. yeah, fish, yes. <laughs> I think this has a lot to do with the structure of science and of seniority and hierarchy and reputation and the process that in science, you must be able to demonstrate objectively and in a reproducible way your findings so that they can be externally validated. And the mirror test was so tantalizing because it's so simple and Some people would say elegant, but I dispute that. An elegant solution has to be a good solution. It can't just be pretty or simple, but the mirror test is simple. And so therefore it was repeatable. Um, it was standardized. This was the big word they used, standardized. Um, because any animal can be put in front of a mirror and provisioned with a mark. Sure, but not any animal cares about a mirror and not every animal cares about a mark. Um, and so, you know, a, a cat or a dog in front of a mirror with a mark on its face may be completely unmotivated to do anything about that. They see um, the mirror, they see the reflection, they've come to learn over time, probably by having experience with mirrors that this is not another cat or a dog in the apartment. Um, it's a reflection of them and they just don't really mind. Um, and this was a process we also went through when we tested some other fish uh, that didn't pass the test. They seemed to, you know, intuitively recognize themselves in the mirror. They stopped fighting with it. They seemed to come to terms with what the mirror is doing. We gave them a mark and they just didn't do anything about it. Um, and the sort of Puritans of the mirror test would say, well, that's because they failed. They're not self-aware. Bang, there's your evidence. 
Um, and we weren't very comfortable with that conclusion because of this idea of motivation. And our strategy there was to find an animal that we did think would be motivated um, to remove a mark. And that turned out to be the cleaner ass and it did remove the mark and that caused an uproar. But to me, it just shone a, a light on the test as being uh, inadequate. There's this quote that floats around the internet, like many quotes, is misattributed to Einstein. Uh, and it says, if you judge the intelligence of a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will grow up thinking it is stupid. Or if you judge the intelligence of an elephant uh, by its ability to climb a tree. And the test is not applicable across species at all because species differ in their inherent um, response to another individual or to themselves or to a mark. And so it's my opinion that if we want to translate that intuitive subjective sense that a dog or a cat or a young infant has self-consciousness, we have to very carefully formulate what we consider that to be. Not even all humans pass the test. No? And there's uh, large differences, like, for instance, between rural and urban people. I think rural people are worse at it. And uh, as well, when you <laughs> give uh, children a cleaning task before you do the mirror test, then they're better at it. Yeah, absolutely. When you grow up in a society that you're bombarded with advertisements and images and faces on billboards. Um, yeah, cleanliness and grooming. Um, then of course your motivational state will be different. It doesn't mean that you're less self-aware. That's absurd. Now, if we can accept that statement, then why can't we accept that the test is not a good test in animals when we acknowledge that some of them are more or less motivated to clean a mark off themselves? Um, and yet that's how it was interpreted. Um, until I came along and said, look, this little fish does it. It does it. Uh, and now people are really starting to say, okay, this test is doing something else. It has to be because the fish passes it and a fish is not self-aware. Um, I don't think that's the right way round, but it is valuable that we're questioning the test and how one might pass it. Uh, it's just a shame that it's based in pre-existing bias about what an animal should or shouldn't do um, as the motivation. But nevertheless, it is a positive process, I think, in science that we are re-evaluating what we thought we knew. Um, and science is not a smooth process. It's a seismic process where there's resistance, there's resistance, there's resistance, and then crack, there's a fracture. And we lurch somewhere. And I hope and I feel that the pressure is building on the accepted order of intelligent animals, um, but more so on what even intelligence in animals means to us as humans. It's a paradigm shift, no? Let's hope so. Let's see. I hope so. I think I'm contributing in some way to a paradigm shift. I think the mirror test still is an amazing tool, but actually for a specific form of self-awareness that demands some abstraction. You have to be able to recognize a representation 
of yourself that is outside yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think understanding even a reflection is an incredible task. And it is worth saying that fish do not immediately understand a reflection. Same as many cats and dogs and forest creatures um, and humans in the first time they see a mirror. It, it takes a while to understand that the, the object that you're looking at is reflecting the world that you are in. Um, and I agree that many animals will have an awareness of self in some respect that they exist, but not all animals will be able to extend that and understand the mirror as a tool, as something that allows, for instance, them to see around corners, um, that it changes the way that light is bent and moves. There's another test that is, I'd say, just as famous, the marshmallow test. And not so long ago, cuttlefish passed the marshmallow test. Not yes. with the marshmallows, of course, but... Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's very funny that you bring this up because that study was led by my ex-girlfriend, um, Alex. Um, and um, she's been interested in these animals for a decade or so now. These kind of tests where we are again taking tests that are used in human infants to represent the onset of certain um, cognitive capacities, like delayed reward in this case, um, are captivating because they allow this direct comparison and reflection. Ah, but I thought this was a very human trait, the ability to, to defer reward. But look, this thing, a cuttlefish, a cuttlefish? Like, those are those things that wash up on the beach, aren't they? If they can do it, what does this mean for us? Are we stupid? It inspires um, these kind of processes of, of reflection on the state of humanity. Um, so these kind of tests are very fun and very exciting. And I should be clear that I don't think that the, the work that I've done, or for instance, this, this marshmallow test work is any less because it's using tests that I think are not necessarily testing what people think they're testing for. I think perhaps it's more, you know, we're showing that species can pass these tests, um, by other cognitive skills or feats and we don't know what those are but it opens the door for that type of inquiry you think the mental processes are really so different you said you were doing experiments on the sadness of fish how do you do that this is work uh, actually that was pioneered by um, a professor at stanford russ finald you have a pair bond formed between fish, a male and a female fish, um, that mate together. And then you take the male from that pair and you place him in the tank of another male and the female is watching and the male will be driven out of the territory of the male whose tank it is. And so he, he goes through a negative experience. Now, if you look inside the brain of that male, 
having lost that encounter, there are patterns of brain activity associated with sadness and fear. And we can look inside the brain like an MRI scan, an fMRI, to look for regions that are active in certain contexts. Think about something that made you feel sad. Think about something that made you feel happy. And in humans, we can localize regions of the brain that are active in those kind of thought processes. And here's a newsflash. The brain of a fish is incredibly similar to the brain of a human. It's got basically all of the same bits and pieces for many fish. And so we can do the same thing in a fish. We can see that when this male lost a fight, his regions that process fear and social information and memory and sadness, um, if that's the right word. Um, I only say if that's the right word because is sadness a uniquely human thing? But anyway, and you see that all those regions are upregulated. Then you look in the female partner and you see that the same regions are upregulated in her. She watched her partner experience the fight and she has similar patterns of brain activity. And then that raises the concept of empathy and sympathy in these animals. And the question there is, we can see that their brain is doing similar things to what our brain does in similar contexts. But does that mean the experience is the same? And that is a question we are directly interested in. We are looking at the way the brain processes social information, threats, aggression, um, appetitive, so good things, social experiences. Um, and we're comparing that across species and trying to understand, does the same brain activity arise from or result in the same behavioral outcomes? Um, and, and in that process, we can look into the brain to ask more or less, what were you thinking at the time? Um, what was your brain doing? Whatever. Uh, and we're doing that also in the mirror test. Is your brain doing something different when you see yourself versus when you see another individual? And that's where we get much closer to the answer of what is this experience of self-awareness or abstraction? Is the animal still really thinking that's another animal, but its behavior is just a bit strange? And in this way, in looking into the brain, um, it has the potential if we can decode what an animal is thinking by examining the patterns of brain activity, then we have a direct readout of thoughts. How do you do an MRI of a fish while looking at the mirror? That's not yet achievable. So there are a bunch of ways. You can do a few things. None of them are very good. One of the ways some researchers do it, not us, they fix the head of the fish in a gel and they show it moving things and they take the top off the skull and they look at the brain activity. Um, MRI lets you know where blood is in the brain, but it doesn't let you know what is happening. But then there's another way which you stain, basically put markers of certain gene activity in the brain. So you can know what's happening where in the brain. 
Uh, and so you can give a fish the experience of a mirror and then look at the brain and say what was happening where when it was looking at the the mirror. Um, currently, we have no way of putting a fish in an MRI and it performing the mirror test. These are not yet technologies available, let's say. And you would as well have to wonder if the fish is more affected by, by the MRI than of course. by the mirror. Exactly, yeah. But he said there are these amazing similarities in the brains of fish and humans. So what is it? Like the neurotransmitters are the same? No, the anatomy is the same. There's something called the social decision-making network. Um, it's a network of brain regions that are highly connected that encode and process social information. And those brain regions are conserved across fish, birds, mammals. You know, this idea of a, a lizard brain, people say, oh, your lizard brain is taking over. And then we can look for genes um, that are upregulated, basically switched on in those brain regions um, during different processes. And that allows us, for example, If we look at the dopaminergic pathways, then we can infer that this was activity in the emotional regions that was positive. You know, I'm hesitant to put subjective value statements on non-human animals, but you could say that the fish liked this. It was happy. It's just not maybe the same thing we experience when we are happy. You want us to learn from the fish, but as well, the fish kind of get something out of it? Um, I think it's vain to expect that the fish is directly benefiting or enjoying being part of my experiments. I strive to make sure the fish is not unhappy. I don't do those kind of experiments. Um, if the fish is indifferent to my presence, that's good enough for me. But I don't think the fish is... I was about to say, I don't think the fish is learning anything from me, but we have direct experiences commonly from the field that fish in the area learn that we go around and put our equipment down and make a kerfuffle. And when we enter the water, they find us and they follow us and they follow us in ways that make it very hard to work because you're swimming around and you have three or four fish following not you they don't want to eat you they want to eat whatever you're about to disturb and so they are certainly learning from that they're learning that your work even if they don't care what your work is can provide opportunities for them the fish in the mirror test i mean it's gaining knowledge it learns what a mirror does can it use that information in any way that's an interesting question some work in crows shows that When they are not being observed by another individual, they will hide food items. But when they're being observed by a mirror by another individual, they won't do that. So they clearly can use the mirror to their advantage or avoid disadvantage. So in that sense, they are learning. When we think about how humans affect the environment, we're much about we're creating so much damage. Uh, we are disturbing natural balance. But there's as well an adaptation process taking place of, of animals, of plants, probably too. 
to this like massive human interference. What do you think? What is the scale of this adaptation? The scale can be everything. I mean, it can be from cultural or behavioral adaptation where animals learn to exploit some new food source or it can be over thousands or millions of years where there are population level or species level changes, evolutionary changes. And this is something that I think about a lot and like to think about. And I find it incredibly comforting because I am a wildlife biologist. I am studying animals out in the world. And so I have a great vested interest in protecting that world. It's where I spend my time. It's what I love. And it's what I try to educate people about. But at the same time, I'm aware as an evolutionary biologist that except in an absolute cataclysm, you know, if, if we do anything less than basically tear the world in half with nuclear war, anything under that, nature will recover from. It may take tens of millions of years or more, but life will prevail. Unless we sterilize the earth with nuclear radiation, the world will come to some new equilibrium. And so when I think about the changes wrought by humans, when I think about the destruction and the idiocy of policy, on the one hand, I want to shake people and say, don't you like the forest? Don't you like the ocean? Why are you doing these things that will destroy it? But on the other hand, I think 10 million years in the future. And okay, so we cause massive global warming. Uh, the, the, the temperature rises by 10 degrees, 15, 20, I don't know. And the only life surviving is in the deep oceans or wherever. Humans are completely wiped out, as is every mammal. Um, okay, so what? In 100 million years, there'll be some new thing, maybe a different kind of endothermic, um, warm-blooded, furry thing that's kind of like a mammal. Maybe fish will evolve again out of the water. Maybe crustaceans will. Um, whatever it is, something new will come. Uh, and so at one level, that's a very pessimistic attitude that where we're headed is complete destruction of humans and most everything we know. But on the other hand, that doesn't matter because the world in its history has never been the same for any extended period of time. It's always changing. We're the newest thing and certainly we're the, the thing that's most rapidly changing everything. But so did plants. I mean, plants, you could argue plants destroyed the world. They pumped out. Uh, toxic oxygen that killed almost everything. Actually, that was probably algae at that point and totally disrupted the world. And then now new things evolved that could use that oxygen. And among those things, we are one um, and depend inherently on it. And if that oxygen ceases to be there, we're all going extinct. But then something else will be in the atmosphere and something else will evolve. So in short, Yes, we're changing everything, but we're not going to destroy the world. We're going to destroy ourselves 
and I'm okay with that. During your research, you notice where kind of our interference that we ourselves perceive as destructive uh, actually is beneficial for certain creatures. So I work a lot in Lake Tanganyika. It's a huge lake spanning four countries in Africa, bordered by Zambia, Tanzania, Congo, and Uganda. It holds 16% of the world's fresh water. Think about that. 16% of all of the fresh water, liquid fresh water in the entire earth is there. And the level of that lake is currently rising. It's not clear why that is, but it is drowning the cities and villages around the lake. That is unbelievably destructive, of course. But because of that, the fish now have access to all of this structure and environment to live in, all of these resources that were previously literally out of reach. And in that sense, the fish in this lake are displacing the humans. Humans are always displacing nature, but in this process it's reversed. And I think you couldn't argue that it's not beneficial for the fish. They have more places to live, more food to eat. The humans are pushed away. And so there you have it exactly this case, that nature, in this case, in a very sort of damaging and violent way, is reclaiming human territory. And I just wish that wasn't happening in a remote lake in Africa. I wish that was happening in Manhattan. Then you'd start to see people pay attention. And some part of me hopes that it does happen in Manhattan. How fast is the water level rise of that lake? It's hard to say because it's not a long-term trend. In 2017, the level of the lake was normal, but that's a silly thing to say. Normal over the period that we've known about, which is only a decade or so, but let's be honest. But since then, in the last four years, it's steadily risen, and now it's about three and a half meters higher than it was. It's not um, a small thing. We're not talking about centimeters like we are in the ocean, it's, it's meters. And the village that we usually stay at, the huts are underwater now. The nearest town to us, um, you know, the roads and, and the ports are all underwater. Will it stay that high? We don't know. We don't know why it's rising. It doesn't even seem that it's because of abnormal rainfall. And what comes next? Is it another three meters over the next five years? Or does it drop 10 meters? Do the fish interact with this architecture? I am super excited to find out. We leave for the lake. Um, we haven't been able to get there, obviously, with the pandemic. And in the town, there was a bar called the Waterfront Bar. It's now underwater. And I am super excited to go there and sit in the bar that I used to sit at. Um, but this time I'll be underwater and I'll be joined by the fish. Yeah, I find that a fascinating prospect. Uh, I see absolutely no reason why they wouldn't use this area. The one wonderful thing in that place, at least, is that the architecture or the construction, rather, is mostly with natural materials. Of course, there's cement, but, um, 
not like a city with whatever, I don't know, other things. You did this experiment with cichlid fish in that lake, actually, in Tanganyaki, where you confronted them with exaggerated shells. Yeah, so these animals have lived and evolved in, in association, some with shells, some with rocks, some with coral reefs, whatever it may be. And we now, with recent technology, we can take those structures, we can put them in a CT scanner, scan them, and then 3D print versions of those things that are exaggerated in some dimension. And an amazing thing we can do is exaggerate them in directions that don't exist in the wild. And we ask the fish, do you prefer that? And the answer is yes. They liked things that did not exist for them in that lake. And that's fascinating because it's showing you that there are things that we can give animals that they would prefer over the things they currently have. Um, and we're very interested in doing exactly this thing with coral reefs. Can we provide structures and shelters that give the animals what they need and want while we simultaneously destroy the corals that they previously lived on? There's as well a project you're doing with this artist collective, Superflex, and another one with TBA21 Academy, where you're also investigating how different structures, structural shapes are beneficial to yeah. different creatures in the sea. Exactly. Yeah, so with TBA21 Academy, we're working in Jamaica. A PhD student of mine is interested in the way space and structure influences social interactions. Because what we know in coral reefs is that when they are degraded or destroyed, certain species start to disappear. And one of the main reasons that fish get together in groups is for protection so they can see and look out and, and shelter. And if the structure that they are living on is changed so that those group level processes break down, then they're vulnerable. And so we're interested in whether we can provide that structure again and restore group function so that those animals can persist in those places. And so Anya, my uh, PhD student in my group, is working there with a variety of artists, looking at whether we can provide structures that facilitate proper social interaction for fish. And then with Superflex, um, we're looking at the way that structure in and around Copenhagen also influences the structure of communities and what the impact has been of human-induced changes in that structure and uh, what that's done to the underwater half of that city. I mean, if you think about a city like Copenhagen or, or Venice, so much of it is about what's below the waterline, but we don't see it. We ignore it and often to our detriment. So in both cases, I'm very interested in, in continuing this line of asking, can we restore the world? Maybe not to what it was, but to something that gives the species a fighting chance. So again, it's playful. I'm working with artists 
the scientists around me think, well, that's a bit silly. You know, you shouldn't be working with artists. What can an artist tell you about science? And I feel sorry for my colleagues that think that way, that are so canalized in in their work that they can't see the value in the contributions of people that think differently, of people that have had a different background and perspective on questions and problem solving and creativity. And sure, sometimes those discussions go in directions that are not ultimately useful. It's too different. It's too impractical. It's too whatever. But that's not been my experience. In the process of that discussion, you actually learn a great deal about what even you're trying to do. What is the discussion? You're trying to design a home for a fish. And in the process of doing that, through the the discussions with different people, you realize that's not what we're asking. We're asking about the nature of desire, or we're trying to understand how do we even assess want or need in something that can't tell us directly. And I find that to be invigorating and a source of growth as a scientist, that you put yourselves in context where those discussions are allowed to happen. And so in the last five years, working with non-scientists in scientific contexts has been one of my greatest joys. I'm using it as a source for my scientific inquiry, even if the conversation is about some artistic practice that I really don't understand. I'm not understanding the artistic side of the discussion, but I'm gleaning little pieces and ways of thinking and ways of posing questions um, that directly inform my work, trying to understand and maybe if I can help the animals in the underwater world. From a very general understanding of engagement for the environment, it's all about restoring, about regeneration. But I wonder if there is really a separation possible between this and actually constructing something completely new. You know, when you have a predator drone that is killing the starfish so that the, the corals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are not eaten. Yeah. I mean, it's a massive intervention. Yes, I think you and I there are of the same heart. It feels like we're trying to press pause and rewind to, I don't know, is it the 50s or is it the the turn of the century, last century, that we're trying to get the world back to? And basically, the amount of energy that you would need to put in to turn things backwards is madness. Everything goes forward. And that's true for both destructive and creative processes. And in my mind, it's not about, yeah, sending out drones that kill starfish or insulating some part of the world against, you know, making a biosphere or something. It's about moving forward in a way that maximizes the chances of a new balance that is something we like yeah i mean ultimately we're the ones calling the shots in this respect i mean nature is calling the shots it's the one providing the massive amount of pressure but we're trying to do things that guide that process um, in some small way and so it to me would be far better to understand the world as best as we can to understand 
what we're trying to do because that's not very clear always um what are we trying to have more of what are we trying to have less of and set the game up so that it gets to that place by natural processes because if you try to oppose natural processes you try your hardest to hold them back or to send robots to destroy something or heat up a lake or cool down the ocean if you're trying to do those massive interventions to the natural state of things they will fail they will fail because policy wise something will change or it becomes too expensive or like most massive interventions it has unforeseen consequences for the natural world you said in the end it's about what we like and i think this is happening already there's a hierarchy just as in the mirror test when it comes to saving the absolutely. ocean the world absolutely you know i love elephants i love whales but it has to be a balanced view where if you say you want to save the world then you must acknowledge that the world is predominantly made up of insects plants and and the small stuff viruses yes. microbes yes or you can be honest and say no i'm not interested in those things i don't care if all the viruses go extinct or most of the insects um i just want to save the elephants hey i can actually respect that yeah that's your thing you love elephants but if you're genuine about saving or conserving the world then you shouldn't care about this fish of mine because it passes the mirror test you should care about this fish just as much if it's this brown lump on the ocean floor that is stupid and has a 3 second memory it should in my opinion have as much weight in a conservation debate as the most brilliant parrot or or whatever or if not then we should be honest with ourselves and say it is the big colorful things that we want to save and we're going to concentrate all our efforts on that if you would think like first phase of the anthropocene or whatever how we call this like human dominance is just claiming taking for their own benefit yeah okay now second phase starts there is concern about the environment yeah. it's like new phase mm -hmm. of even further dominance you know before it's just like us against nature yeah and then it's us being paternalistic against nature mm -hmm. so you know first you destroy and then you nurture you kind of but of mm. course under your conditions yes and in this some are better at adapting as before as with dogs and cats yes, they yes. were they were good at it yes now you could choose an animal what would you go for i think i imagine it's like a new kind of competition and you have to save their niche and maybe as well change their niche create a completely new niche for them so that they are can sustain yeah no i think it's a really good point ultimately we are trying to now orchestrate and curate the natural world to contain the things that we want. And so if I have to sort of pick my battle in in that war, I'm colored by trying to go for the organisms that won't get represented otherwise. So 
coral reef fish, these kind of things, I think they're going to have champions. So I'll leave them alone. And yep, your forest creatures, your foxes and whatever else, your kangaroos, um, they're also okay. But I would have to then choose one of two things. The first would be surprising perhaps, but that's spiders. Because they're going to find few champions um, because people are afraid of them. But they're essential. Mosquitoes are going to run riot, for example. But then I would always try and save Lake Tanganyika and the cichlids there. Because this is a place like no other that's probably ever existed on Earth. So imagine you have Africa and it rips open in a big chasm. I mean, we're talking 700 kilometers long, two kilometers deep. It's this giant thing and there's rivers on the sides of it and they fall into this chasm. And over millions of years, they fill this with water and a handful of species, four or five species, come into this new lake. And then over the next millions of years, those four or five multiply into all of the different species. Everything, every job that needs to be done or can be done is done by one of these fish because there's nothing else there. Everything that can be eaten, something specializes to eat it. Everything that, every type of camouflage or color, something specializes. So it's just like this firework of evolution and then some of them go extinct and they disappear and, and then you, you stabilize. And so basically you dive into this lake and you look around and like no other place you can see because you know these two fish came from the same place and you see, ah, this one is specialized at going really fast and catching things because I can see from the shape and this one's really squashed so it can get into these cracks and crevices. and. Everywhere you look, it's like there's a story that's really obvious in, in the coral reef or, or in the forest. There's so much competition and different things that the story is muddled. And Darwin had this phrase of the, the tangled bank. You know, it's just so much going on that it's, it hurts your brain. But there, because you know where it started and where it is, you draw lines. They might be wrong. They probably are wrong. Your inference is wrong, but the story is like there in your face. Is this ecosystem very endangered? It is. It's massively endangered because, as I said, it contains 16% of the world's fresh water. If you control that, and as some have predicted, water becomes a limiting resource uh, in the near future, drinkable water, then of course, this is a massive source of conflict. But also I think very recently it's been approved for exploratory petroleum drilling. Now in the ocean, petroleum drilling is terrible because of the spills and the transport. But the ocean is such a massive system that each spill is localized and destroys a, an area that can be repopulated. If there's an oil spill in this lake, boom, gone. It, it will never come back. There's nowhere for the oil to go. It will kill the entire lake. And that's a really, really scary thought. But because it's shared across borders, it's almost like the tragedy of the commons. You know, if, if we don't do it, they will. So how do you want to save the ecosystem? Well, by talking to you about it, for example, as a start, I mean, what can I do? I can 
tell people that this is an amazing place, that this place is special, that it's at risk. I can't convince the government of Congo not to drill. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a depressing kind of question because I know that the economic and socioeconomic pressures vastly outweigh one scientist who really likes to swim in this lake. Is there a lot of tourism? In Tanzania, there is. there are tourist lodges and um, in Zambia as well. In Tanzania, it's much more accessible. Um, there's trains and an airport on the lake at Kigoma. Where we work in the very south, there's, it's remote. It's unchanged for millennia. Is it safe to swim in the lake? Yeah, absolutely. Not like parasites that you... No parasites. Um, in other lakes in the region, there's Bilazia, Schistosomiasis. Um, but not in Lake Tanganyika. Not clear why. Um, I've been working in Lake Tanganyika for over a decade and never had schistosomiasis. Crocodiles and hippos are in the lake, but that's okay. You just don't swim where they are. And hippos especially are not around human settlements, typically. Crocodiles can be, but, but the population density of local fishing villages is high enough that people know where the crocodiles are and if you're away from a village yeah don't don't swim in the grass relatively simple i'm still alive so but then maybe the approach has to be a bit different than just about preservation defending you have to be a bit more no it's a good point as we said things are changing yep. they evolve yep so maybe there's a way for the cichlids in it Yeah, I mean, ecotourism is, of course, developing everywhere and equally so can be done in, in Lake Tanganyika. I mean, it's not about keeping people away. It's about bringing people to the place and raising its profile. And people love these kind of wrecks yeah. and stuff. And when now they are complete villages underwater, this can be... Yeah, true. Actually, the region could profit a lot from it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very storied lake. There was World War I naval battle on that lake between uh, the German, the, the, the Kraft Götzen was a ship um, that was stationed on the lake and they controlled what was then German East Africa. And the British surreptitiously brought the pieces for three boats overland through Congo, constructed them on the lake and then snuck up on the German boat and sunk it because the German boat was very confident in the knowledge that there were no other ships on Lake Tanganyika. And they sunk that ship and then won that local skirmish. And six years later, they brought the ship back up and it's the ferry that runs to this day between Tanzania and Zambia. Um, and yeah, now with potentially underwater villages and other archaeological sites. Another approach could be to erect additional architecture, something that the fish like yep. and the tourists too. Yep. No, absolutely. This kind of approach of building, not just, yeah, like a, whatever, the equivalent of the, what are they called? These clay soldiers in the Forbidden City, but actual installations underwater that are equally attractive to both the fish and the humans. I mean, yeah. 
well, we have a bit of knowledge on what the fish in that lake like and we're continually getting more. So yeah, it's a worthwhile approach. So what do they like? They like to balance the feeling of safety of being in an enclosed space with the ability to, it's very human, to attract mates by having lots of space. So they want to have things that represent wealth is not the right word, I think, not the right translation, but it is in a sense the right word, but not put themselves at too great of a risk. So they're looking for the biggest car they can drive, but not one that they're going to, you know, have stolen from them um, by a bigger fish. Because there's always a bigger fish, you must remember that. So that's the balance that they're trying to strike. How big are the cichlids? Well, they can be two centimeters and they can be the biggest cichlid, um, I guess is Belongerochromus, and it's 70 centimeters, almost a meter. Um, a big, big fish. I've been bitten by them when I, you know, they don't, they're not aggressive, but I was swimming near their babies to look at them and I got a nice bite. So how huge are the shells up to how huge? Ah, uh, no, the, the shells are only for the smaller ones. The shells are like very large snails in that range but it's only a few of the, the cichlids that live in shells the others live in in rocks and in forests so you know the range of architectures um, that could be provided is massive and the range of architectures that actually already exists in those lakes because imagine it's the world has torn in half and so there are these underwater cliff faces and these huge crevices and these boulders and you know it's a stunning structural landscape under the water it's a nice playground for those kind of ideas and the bigger ones they also have this idea that they appreciate space we don't know we've never had the means to create on that scale i mean manipulating small shells is achievable for us but on a larger scale creating an underwater cathedral for these fish uh yeah that's that's something i've always in australia in my childhood there was a dam created and it flooded a town and there was a church in the town and so there's this church spire just sticking up out of the water and underwater you can dive into it i don't know why a church is so evocative to me i'm not religious in any way maybe it's that irreverence thing but uh no i like that idea a dome yeah a pleasure dome yes <laughs> yeah just make sure you know where the door is because you're only a temporary visitor for, for them so you could think, for instance, that they would like rocks in different colors. Color is a very interesting idea. Certainly they have color preferences. Um, the fish themselves are incredibly colorful. And we know that they like and are attracted and have these preferences for certain colors. But then it gets this question of abstraction. Let's say I like a certain hair color. That doesn't mean that I like my buildings to be that color. If you know that a fish prefers orange in in male partners a female fish wants the most orange male if you give her orange everything is she happy um i would think probably not but i don't know the answer but if she were then it speaks to this sort of pathway in the brain that everything is filtered through this desire for a color if not then it's actually it's first you know breaking it up amongst different things partners or shelter and then there's a color preference and that reveals something very fundamental about how behavior in the brain works so it's not frivolous but i 
again, I can hear my colleagues down the hall saying, ah, oh, bloody artists again with the colors and stuff. I don't care. Yeah, maybe your experiments have to get even more frivolous. Yeah, there's like new ways of funding. Yes, exactly. Finding new ways of breaking the mold and finding insight and engagement with the public, with people that otherwise don't care about my silly little fish, but finding new ways to show people the wonder of the world and of the oceans, and in my case, in particular, the underwater world, requires new ways of doing things because you know the grand scientific institutes the royal society of london is not going to be you know funding my research to paint giant rocks pink and put them underwater so more frivolity more opportunity i could imagine that you know when you say it would become possible to observe the dopamine levels of a fish and we could think of building a kind of connection like mirroring that within our brain like we observe fish mm -hmm. and not just see them but have like equivalent changes in our neurotransmitter levels mm -hmm. that would be an amazingly immersive experience so you mean external manipulation of our neurotransmitters yes wow that would be bridging the gap absolutely they would be in charge They would be controlling your experience. You know, they monitor the behavior of these fish and sometimes they're angry and sometimes they're calm and sometimes they're sad or whatever. And they manifest that in the shapes they create, in the movement. And sure, you can look at a fish and see it swimming around and maybe it, it speaks to you in some way. But if you can translate that into a medium that really is evocative, then you start to really plug straight into what the experience of the animal is in that time. And that to me, I think is a really powerful avenue for creating an understanding and creating a bridge between the things that have fur and eyes that we like and the things that may not have those traits, but we can give them through translation other ways of speaking to us and, and influencing us. Once you are aware that an animal is experiencing some kind of feeling or emotion during some exposure or some, you know, whatever experience, you, you can never put that out of your mind or should never. And that's, again, I guess why it's so convenient to assume that fish have no memory and that they don't feel pain or whatever. I think empathy is more complex than that. Mm -hmm. It's not enough that we know that certain humans suffer. I mean... Hitler knew that the Jews were suffering. Yeah. He actually didn't visit the concentration camps for good reason. We eat cows even though they have this like beautiful eyes. Yeah. We eat pigs even though they are extremely sensitive creatures. But we don't eat dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's a different story because we actually live with them. But I think we need like this empathy enhancer for these creatures that are discriminated on base of no eye movement, yeah. of quietness, mm -hmm. of size, yeah. of remoteness. I fully agree with you. I'm on board with that. And I think it would change people's minds. But it's about giving them a gaze that we feel and a voice that we hear. A completely immersive experience. 
This was the second episode of Ocean Wants, featuring Alex Jordan. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertunk.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.